Back to the Bulwark goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at the Bulwark, uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined by David Heron. Uh, David Heron is the uh, the founder of the Quorum, which is a, you go to thequorum.com, uh, and if you're a box office nerd like I am, you will find something there that you cannot find anywhere else in public, uh, which is tracking data. People people want to know what folks are looking at uh, in terms of what they're going to go see at the movies uh, and what they are excited for and what they want to see. Importantly. Uh, for free or for pay. Uh, it's a great website. You should go check it out again, thequorum.com. Um, and David is on uh, today to talk about a uh, the second installment of a, a poll that you guys have been doing, uh, Exhibition at a Crossroads. We're going to talk about that in a second. But first, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit because you are uh, currently right now, as we speak, uh, in the beating heart of the movie theater universe. You are at CinemaCon. Um, I had uh, the head of NATO uh, theaters, not treaties, uh, on a couple weeks ago to talk about CinemaCon. So I'm excited to see what the vibe is like there. Uh, how are folks feeling uh, at Caesar's Palace? Well, I think that um, the overarching emotion is celebration and optimism, especially given the fact that CinemaCon was really disrupted last year. And... Um, I think that the, the the state of theatrical today is very different than it was just five or six months ago. So much healthier. And um, and everybody is really sort of celebrating in that. The other thing that's really happening at CinemaCon is that the studios over and over and over again are proclaiming their commitment to theatrical, which um, is a little bit of a dog and pony show. But, you know, I, I was I was at the, the Warner's presentation yesterday and you know it's a, it was a two-hour it was a two-hour presentation where they sort of go over their slate and their upcoming movies you know warners was sort of an interesting position because they were the one studio that did day and date for their entire 2021 slate which you know did not make exhibition happy um and so they came in here kind of in a position to grovel and say hey get, you know we said back in 2021 that we were going to put our entire 2022 slate in theatrical only and we kept our word <laughs> Right. So, so, you know, you're welcome. But, um, but, but through that two hour presentation yesterday, the first 25 minutes were um, executives from Toby Emmerich on, on down the line, just sort of saying how important theatrical is and how committed we are to theatrical and let's celebrate this moment. And so, you know, I think some of it is, is real and some of it might feel a little disingenuous, but, but overall, I think people are feeling very optimistic about it. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I heard about the the Warner Brothers presentation as well. It sounded it sounded very much like a uh, you know uh, a, a not quite a mea culpa, but uh, you know, hey, look, things things were bad. We all acknowledge things were bad. Things were every things were bad all around. We did what we had to do, uh, and now we're we're back. Is there any is there any talk about uh, some of these uh, studios putting more stuff back in theaters, shifting away from streaming and to theatrical? like back to theatrical. I know there was a there was a mention of this possibly in uh, Matt Bellany's newsletter uh, over at Puck. He talked about, you know, Warner Brothers maybe moving Batgirl uh, yeah. from an HBO Max exclusive to to doing a theater and then exclusive run. You know, it, that that makes sense financially in a certain way, maybe. Um, but it would also certainly be a a a friendly hand to the the folks who who own the theaters. Yeah, well, that would be really remarkable if that happens, because to my knowledge, that would be the first time that a movie was greenlit 
for streaming and then sort of made the transition over to theatrical. I've, I've been talking for some time now about how I think that Hocus Pocus 2 is a movie that could do that could and should do that same thing. It's, you know, it's being developed for Disney Plus. But all of the numbers that we see on the quorum show that there's enormous levels of awareness and interest in that movie, especially among women and older women, which is, you know, one of the hardest demographics to get back into the theaters at the moment. So so it would not surprise me if we start to see that happening, that the the, the, the journey from streaming to theatrical as opposed to theatrical to streaming. There is a feeling here that day and date has run its course. I think that I, there is certainly a consensus that Peabot didn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. So Peabot, I think the days of Peabot are gone. But this uh, idea, we should say Peabot being premium video on demand. Yeah. And, that you know, this Peabot came about out of necessity because theaters are essentially closed in early, you know, midway through 2020 and 2021. So you can't begrudge them for trying it. But uh, there is there is sort of a feeling that, that Peabot didn't work. Day and date, the studios have, have shied away from it. You know, Universal's kind of dabbling in it a little bit still with Firestarter. But, you know, I think there's there's a feeling on the floor that, that Disney really left a lot of money on the table with Turning Red going to their streaming service, especially by fast forward two weeks. And Sonic the Hedgehog opens to $71 million going after exactly the same audience. So uh, it, it feels like it feels like day and date um, is, is beginning to wind down. Having said that, there's still content that's being created for streaming. There's still content that's being created specifically for theatrical. And I think that we might see every now and again a crossing of those lines. It could be, you know, a, a film that is created for streaming that suddenly the dailies come in. And this thing looks like it's really going to work and connect in a meaningful way. Or a studio will say, you know what, we're not going to go streaming with this. Let's open this thing theatrically. And vice versa, where a movie is, is greenlit for theatrical and, you know, this, the dailies come in and there's a conversation. Of, well, do we want to do a $30 million P&A and marketing campaign for this movie if, if you know, this dog is not going to hunt? Um, I think one of the things that we're beginning to learn about theatrical is that... You know, the world of 2019 or 2018, where you had uh, a slate of 2025 movies going to theatrical, it simply doesn't work anymore. Right? You, have to, you have to really cherry pick the films that you're going to go to theatrical with because audiences are really being very selective about they want to go see. So they'll go and they'll go in big numbers, but they're not going to go for just anything. And that's, that's, that's the behavior that still needs to shake out over the next few months, right? You know, Exhibition is a little bit frustrated at the moment because there's not a lot of content in the marketplace. So, you know, you look at a movie like Batman, which essentially had four weeks to itself, right? So there's mm-hmm. nothing open the week before, nothing opened against it, and then nothing opened two weeks after it. And theater owners are saying, I, we need content. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still happening a little bit. There's not a whole lot out there. That's going to change. A lot of that was, you know, movies being pushed because of COVID. You know, you're looking at Paramount pushed Mission Impossible and... Warner's pushed almost all of their DC movies, uh, and, and that that's all sort of COVID related. So that that'll that'll sort of subside a little bit, and, and I think we're going to get into sort of a normal uh, distribution and release pattern cadence down the road. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for uh, a, a a marketplace that does not have a tentpole every week or every other week. I mean, there there I I I will say just from my own experience and from talking to folks before the pandemic, there was some exhaustion i think you know uh, every every other weekend having you know a 200 million dollar movie out to go see like their audiences may have been a little pushed a little hard uh at, before before we got to there but i can i can also see it from the perspective of the theater owners who need those 
to fill the seats and to get get people in every week to to buy the popcorn. Yeah, well, so you know what we were seeing in 2018, 2019 was you could have a weekend where there were four wide releases, new wide releases. In some cases, you had five. Well, that that's just unnecessary, right? So you know, there's this theory that the pie is the pie is finite, right? The number of people are going to go to the, the the theater on a given weekend is kind of the same. And if you put five movies in there, those just the slices of the pie just get too small, right? Those days, I think, are gone. Um, and we haven't seen a weekend with more than three wide releases. And I think that's a good thing, right? I think that there needs to be some curation and editing of the movies that go theatrical. But what we don't want are week after week after week where we're getting one release and it's a tentpole and nothing else. There's got to be, there's a happy medium that has to exist in theatrical. And and we haven't quite reached that yet. Yeah. How are, uh, how are folks, uh, let's say, um, feeling about Netflix right now? uh on the at the on the CinemaCon floor well so you know you have to remember that the CinemaCon is really theatrical based so you know in the conversation <laughs> well the conversation you had um this week about netflix um was really um focused on on television and um and their series but on the film side you know i think some of the questions that are being posed around las vegas are you know what does the theatrical world of netflix look like going forward right so netflix is a little bit of an enemy of theatrical for a number of reasons they collapse windows they four-wall their movies which means they don't have to report box office they don't do marketing campaigns um and so um they've always kind of felt like an other and is that something that's going to change going forward does netflix need to have a more meaningful presence in theatrical you know i mean they just I think yesterday or, or late last night, this morning they dated, they finally gave a date to The Gray Man, which is their big $200 million tentpole movie. So that's going to go out, I think, in June or July. Um, well, what does that mean? Because historically, Netflix has only done a handful of theaters, right? And in most cases, they've done that just for awards consideration at the end of the year. But is Netflix beginning to move into, is, is Netflix beginning to have, a more meaningful presence theatrically and what is that going to look like and i think that there are three things that people are looking at if that's the case one is um are they going to do large marketing campaigns that's one two are they going to go wide with their movies um and three well there's four things three are they going to report their numbers because they've never done that before and four are they going to are they going to get into sort of the dating game that's so essential to theatrical. And what I mean by that is, you know, they've got Knives Out 2, high profile movie. If Knives Out 2 was being released by a major studio, it would already have a release date. Mm-hmm. Planted a flag and as a signal to everybody else, like, watch out, stay away from us, we are here. Netflix doesn't do that. They have an enormous slate of movies this year, and most of them still don't have any date. So the question is, is Netflix going to start behaving like a traditional studio going forward if they choose to um sort of incorporate a little bit more in the traditional theatrical model so i think that's something that sort of people are kind of trying to figure out a little bit yeah it was interesting i i I read a story a couple days ago uh about the animation side of netflix essentially people who uh either don't work there anymore or or soon will not be working there anymore is talking about how netflix doesn't give them the runway to like properly promote their things. They want to, they want to announce something is coming in a month and they wanted to be there. And yeah. it's hard to build buzz. It's hard to build buzz when you're, when you're doing that sort of thing. Well, it also really hurts Netflix. So, you know, we've been doing this enormous, enormous study uh, that we started on January 1st. So it's about four months old now. 
And three times a week, we go into the field and we ask people about franchises, not individual movies within the franchise, but the franchises themselves. And we want to know a few things. One thing is, what is your awareness of this franchise? So you look at a franchise like Batman and like 97% of the people are aware of Batman. Sure. Um, so one thing we want to know is awareness. And when we look at awareness of the 150 or so franchises that we're tracking, the Netflix ones always are, are at the very low end, right? And Netflix is now beginning to get into the sequel game, right? So they've got a lot of movies in development that for sequels, which they've never really done before. But sequels are really, the only way that sequels work is if the IP and the franchise that it's based on have a high level of cultural relevance and a high level of awareness. And that's something that Netflix has really struggled to do. And we see that in our data. Um, I think Bird Box, uh, of the Bird Box of the eight or nine Netflix properties that we're tracking on this franchise tracker, Bird Box is the highest level of awareness, but it only ranks, I think like 76 out of mm. all of the, of, the, of the properties that we're tracking. And I think Murder Mystery is second and that's at 103 or 104 in the rankings. So that's a, that's a real challenge for them. And the reason that they don't, the reason that they have very low awareness is the fact that they don't do these long marketing campaigns, which frustrates filmmakers. And also, you watch a movie on Netflix, the next day you've got 50 pieces of brand new content, you almost forget that you watched a movie the day before. Traditional studios do long lead marketing campaigns, they put trailers out months in advance, so that there's a conversation about a movie that takes place over a series of weeks and months. And that simply doesn't happen with Netflix, and it's really hard to create franchises from uh, properties that don't go through that process. That's interesting. So, what what studio does have the best uh, awareness all all around? Is it uh, can you can you say is that or is that un, under the under the hat? Well, so I am going to be I'm going to be presenting these findings uh, while I'm here in Vegas, but I can give you kind of a sneak peek at some of the movies that are kind of the franchise that are are in the top ten. I'll tell you the one that the one that landed in the top ten that really surprised me was Willy Wonka. Um, with 95% awareness. It actually ranks fifth among all of the franchises that we're tracking. But, you know, you've got movies in here, uh, Batman, Spider-Man, Ghostbusters, Lion King, Godzilla, Fast and Furious, Star Wars. What's interesting is, you know, you would sort of expect all of those. I don't know if I respect Wonka, but you would expect all of those. What's interesting is to see kind of the ones that are in the 20 to 30 range, like the, that ranks sort of 20, 21, 22, 20. These are, you know, these are, these are properties that aren't quite top tier and need a little bit of nurturing. Um, you know, like Mission Impossible is one of those that's probably off the top of my head, I would guess somewhere sort of in the 40s, right? So mm -hmm. um, an enormous property for Paramount, but for every cycle, every new every new Mission Impossible movie that comes around, they need to really kind of reinvigorate the base and remind people that you know, Mission Impossible is a film property that you should be paying attention to. And Mission Impossible movies don't quite reach the box office heights of all of those other movies that are in the top ten, and it's for that reason. So oh, that is interesting. That is, I, I would have expected that to do uh, a little bit better, um, considering. I mean, they they're successful, and there's a ton of them. Um, I, I am I'm surprised by that. Yeah, but but also, you know, I I think that you know, the Mission Impossible movies all have their moment when they're released, and then they kind of fall out of the cultural conversation until the next ones come around. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some of the movies that you see in the top 10 don't really have that that same problem. Um, you know, we're beginning to, and we also see some movement in the rankings from January through today. So Avatar, for example, is a franchise that's beginning to sort of pick up some momentum. 
and it's beginning to climb in the rankings. And that's sort of, you know, that the challenge for Fox or for Disney with Avatar is to remind people this is a really important that you love this movie, even though the last one came out, what, 14, 15 years ago, like a generation has passed since Avatar yeah. came out. Um, and you've got four of them coming after this. You, so now it's now it's the ramp up, right? This is It's the ramp up to get people ex to, to remember that Avatar is a meaningful piece of IP. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I As we were about to begin this conversation, I believe the Avatar presentation was beginning. Uh, at, at cinema, there were some, there was some, I was seeing some images come in. We have titles and, and everything. It's very, very exciting. Sadly, um, so I, did not get to, I didn't go to the Disney presentation today. So <laughs> you, you know more than I do at this point. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I, people, people are getting excited for Avatar. It's a, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be huge. All right. So uh, exhibition at a crossroads part two, let's talk about this because I, uh, we, we, we had you on a couple months back. We talked about, uh, we talked about, you know, what is going on with, with film goers and who is coming back and who is still kind of hesitant to. Um, so how do things stand now? There's been some shift uh, in the casual film goer bracket, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so, you know, the, the first study was in October. We fielded it in October. We reported on it in November. And the, the purpose of that study was uh, the thing that sort of hovered over that study was COVID because we wanted to understand how much COVID was really impacting film-going behavior. And, and it did quite a bit back then. I mean, we saw a lot of reluctance. People didn't feel safe going back to the theater. We, we were focused on who are the people who were not going and in its sort of gross generalization of the data, we saw that women weren't going back to the theater or showing much more reluctance and older women. And so the, the first study was really about that. The second study, we looked at that as well, but the results very clearly show that there was uh, we were in a much healthier um, position. And so this study wasn't so much about a moment in time, but it was really about going forward. What does what does the future of theatrical look like in terms of experiences? So we can sort of go into that conversation in a moment. But yeah, the, the nuts and bolts of this study showed that um, more people are going. You know, we have this construct in our study where we divide all respondents into one of five groups. And by the way, in order to qualify for the study, you have to have been a film goer before the pandemic. If you didn't go to the movies before the pandemic, you were not part of the study. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the construct of this of this of the study is these five groups and 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 you know on one of the groups is these are the avids. These are people who just go all the time. They were going before the pandemic, they're going through the pandemic, they're going now. They are really the drivers of the box office. The second group are the are casuals. And these are people who you know, go once once in a while um, before the pandemic. They continue to go once in a while. And then you've got these three other groups that we're really beginning to sort of pay attention to. One of them are the reluctants. I am a reluctant. These are people who will go to the movies when COVID cases come down, but then maybe they won't go as much when COVID cases start to rise. We've got we've got the likely lost who were going to the movies before the pandemic simply aren't going anymore, and they don't see themselves going back. And there's this other group, which is a really interesting group that we call the hopefuls. And these are people who have yet to go to the theater during the pandemic, but they want to, um, and they hope that that day comes soon. And that's this group of hopefuls are the greatest opportunity for theatrical to grow, to expand the audience. And one of the things that we saw in this study in April versus October was that the number of hopefuls, these people who are sitting on the sidelines, dropped considerably, dropped from 29% to 18%. And at the same time, the number of casuals, people who are going to the movies sort of infrequently. They're not avids, but they go every now and again. That jumps from 18% to 31%, which signals that there's this 
there's this movement that's happening from people who were sitting on the sidelines back in November to people who are beginning to dabble in going to the theaters much more selectively. They're not avids, but they are going. And that's really very, very encouraging. But I think that what we're, you know, the theory that we have, and by the way, I, I should say off the bat that, you know, the study was not conducted just by the quorum. It was done with our partners at, at Phanthropology and Coltique and, and Polefish. Um, it, it feels like theatrical is going to hit a wall at some point in terms of audience expansion. And we still have these likely loss who say they're not going to come back. And even though a lot of these hopefuls have transitioned over into casual viewers, there's still a lot of hopefuls, right? And there's still a lot of reluctance like me who will come and go. And so how does theatrical avoid hitting that wall? How does theatrical to continue to expand its business? And that was a really important part of this study as well. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the expansion of the business will come. We'll come back to that in one second. I have I have one methodology question. I just want to make sure I understand. So you're this is not a uh, this is you're not following the same respondents throughout these polls, right? These are new or groups of respond. polled every time. Yeah. Okay. I just I wanted to make sure I understood that. What's what's interesting to me is that the the percentages of avids and uh, hold on avids and reluctance are exactly the same i mean the 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 and and the, and the hopefuls the 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 change is almost entirely in casuals versus um i'm sorry i'm looking at this wrong uh the the casuals versus uh the uh likely the hopefuls loss the hopefuls i'm yeah i'm sorry i'm 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 getting i'm getting mixed up here uh but the but but it but it's 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 a really it's a really clear shift i think from people who uh you know, wanted to go back, did go back, and there are still people who want to go back. But the the numbers of likely lost and avids are pretty much still the same, still exactly the same, right? Right. right. Yeah. And so when we when we, we when we drill down into the data, we can see why that's happening, right? And one of the numbers we look at is um, one of the questions we asked in both surveys was, "Do you feel safe in a movie theater right now?" And that number across the board jumped from 62% to 66%, which doesn't seem like a super, super meaningful jump. But among the group of people who self-identify as casuals, it jumped from 68% to 85%. So that's, that's, a really full, that's a meaningful jump in terms of overall comfort level. I think we can, we can look at some of the, you know, we can look at uh, The Lost City as a, pivotal, as a pivotal film that started to bring audiences that were on the sidelines back into theaters. Obviously we can, you know, the, the big one is Spider-Man. I mean, Spider-Man, Spider-Man got just about everybody. I mean, people who were really, really hesitant about going back to the movies went for that movie. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was really an important one, but then it was kind of reinforced again with the Lost City. And now, you know, there were, there were sort of two groups that were kind of on the sidelines. One were, you know, women and the other one were families. And, the one-two punch from Paramount of The Lost City and then two weeks later Sonic showed that these groups are really are feeling much more comfortable about coming back to the theater. I think we have to give a lot of a lot of credit to Paramount for expanding the box office audience with their slate this spring. Yeah. Uh I want to come back to The Lost City in a second because I have a I have a question about the tracking on that movie, which I was watching pretty closely because I was I was very curious to see how it did. Um, but let's talk about expanding the business of folks who have come back uh, to theaters, because I this is this is the real question, right? You have you have a certain number of people who are going to be coming 
to the theaters and, you know, a certain pe- number of people who will be coming sometimes, not always. The question then is how to maximize that, uh, that, that revenue stream in terms of, um, you know, what are they looking for? What are they expecting? And what sort of extras can you offer them to spend a little more? Uh, the thing that jumped out to me was the merch yeah. the merch category right. because i i like i you know i that's not a thing you think of when you go to the theaters right it's not like you you don't you, you it's hard to imagine uh or it's it's not hard to imagine it's actually very easy to imagine like a disney stand right or or something something of that nature so what are what are what are some of these results how do they uh how could they help get theaters back on their feet well the merch one was sort of interesting as well i i, I didn't think that we were going to see the results that we did um one of the things that we were looking at is is how uh, theatrical serves two masters. And what I mean by that is on one side, you've got film goers who really want a premium experience and they're willing to pay more for it. And, and that premium experience will look like, you know, better food, gourmet food, food, cocktails, food delivered at their seat, bigger seats, no commercials, um, large format screens. And then you, and, and the other, the other master that theatrical is trying to serve is people who are really budget conscious and, don't want to pay the same amount for concessions and and they want discounted tickets and, and and they would go to the movies more often if it was a little bit less expensive to do so. So how does theatrical handle that, right? And so we wanted to know how large are those two camps? Is the premium camp bigger than the budget camp or is the budget camp bigger than the premium camp? And it turns out that the premium camp is significantly budget, uh, larger than the budget camp by, by um, a factor of about four to one. Overwhelmingly, the respondents that, that we polled showed that they wanted an enhanced premium film going experience which sort of begs the question okay well what exactly does that look like right and how how does theatrical monetize and exploit that um and you know the 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 truth is that there's no reason why theatrical can't have the same um experiential feel as a football game or sporting event or a concert right you go to a concert and there's merch everywhere you go to a sporting event, not, there's merch, but there's also terrific food. You know, I go to, you know, I'm from Philadelphia. If I go to a baseball game in Philadelphia, I can get a cheesesteak. If I go to a movie theater in Philadelphia, I cannot get a cheesesteak. And, and you know, there's no reason why you can't have tailgating experiences outside a theater before Spider-Man. You know, you're, you're probably not going to have tailgating for every movie that gets released, but you sure can for Spider-Man. And so how do you, how do you invite filmgoers into that mindset of, Going to the theater is more than just arriving 15 minutes before it opens, going right into the theater, and then leaving right when it's over. And that's what that's we would kind of want to get to that kernel of truth. And yeah, I mean, it turns out you know that merch merch was something that a lot of the people said they were really interested in. And and driving down, you know, drilling down into that merch a little bit more, people actually didn't want merch about the movie they just saw. The merch that they wanted was. For legacy titles so they would go in there and buy merch about star wars right mm-hmm. um and then when we posed the question what if the merch was limited edition so it had some sort of enhanced value well suddenly sure. the interest in the merch went through the roof sure um and so that's you know and and what's nice about what's nice about limited edition merch is that you don't have to make too many of them <laughs> right so so you so you sort of mitigate that concern that you have i'm gonna have all of this inventory left over if people don't buy the merch well don't make very many of them limit them limit your supply demand goes through the roof and then you're fine yeah when we're talking about limited editions i mean what are we talking about here are we talking about like you know uh, 
Mondo prints? What are we, what are the what's the 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 sort of thing we're looking at? Well, maybe truth be told, we didn't really sort of go into a greater definition of what limited edition was, but um, but you know you have to you have to remember the 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 people who are driving the film going these avid fans. They talk about movies offline. They go on Reddit. They talk about it with their friends. They are in box office pools trying to predict how much a movie is going to open to this weekend. They want they want to ingest as much about the movies that they love as possible. And if they can get a T-shirt or a sweatshirt or a hat or a poster that you know maybe only one of five hundred people can get, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll they'll want that. Is it five hundred? Is it thousand? Is it two thousand? Who knows? But but those are those are levels. Those are levers that that theatrical can start to play with. And then suddenly um, going to the theater has this added level of excitement because, oh, I wonder if I wonder if my local theater has got something in, has got a, a new batch of T-shirts that might be really compelling right now. Um, really, what we're trying to do is wrap the theater going experience in something that makes it much more enhanced than just sitting in the dark for two hours. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's interesting. I, there there is a, I mean look there is a there is kind of a tension here in the you know some some there's an economic pressure on uh on on folks in general and you found this in your polling uh that inflation is is a factor people are worried about cost and you know relative to uh, everything else that's going on. What what did the what did your polling find there? Well, this was really interesting. So, you know, we're celebrating the fact that theatrical is having this incredible recovery. And yet uh, the number was 52% of respondents said that they are going to the movies less often because of inflation. And so when you think about that, you're like, well, imagine what this recovery would have looked like if we didn't have this inflation situation that we're in right now. Um, so that just sort of suggests that there's even more upside when some of these inflationary pressures start to ease, if they ever start to ease. Um, so, so that's, you know, it's it's both discouraging and encouraging that we can we started to see people come back despite the fact that inflation is really starting to, to to hurt people. It does make me think that, you know, some of these people who are sitting on the sidelines because of, of um, budget issues or want that budget experience might start to come back if inflation comes down a bit more. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. It's fascinating. I mean, we we look at you know uh, inflation a lot here at the Bulwark because it's a it is a political issue. So it is uh, kind of interesting to 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 keep track of and see what's happening. Um, let's. I want to talk a little bit about the. Can we can we talk a little bit about the in, the tracking of individual films here? Sure. Because I, I I wanted to talk a little bit about the tracking on uh, the Lost City, yeah. which I thought was I thought was really interesting because I'm I'm just pulling it up right now. Give me one sec here. Right, do I need to pull uh, it up as well? <laughs> I, I I don't I don't think you need to. I don't I don't think you need to. Um, but the uh, so it, 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 there was a kind of standard. You know, the awareness was was good, um, uh, throughout, and then you know people people were interested in seeing it, and then it it leveled off. The interest over time leveled off on the Lost City in a way that I was a little bit surprised by. I I thought it was going to be one of these movies that kept going up and up and up, and it just just flattened out a little bit, but that's that being said, it still has done quite nicely in theaters. Uh, what was your what was your takeaway from the success uh, or or you know uh, not success of that? I mean, it seemed to be pretty successful. I think it's done all right um, of that film. Uh, well, yeah. So by the way, if the, so if if you've got some some um, sort of 
data geeks out there and they're looking at the numbers on the quorum. A lot of people ask me, what's a good number on the quorum? Um, and and I get that question a lot on, on the interest metric. You know, we track four main metrics and interest is one of them. And interest seems like the one that's hardest for people to kind of wrap their head around a little bit. We ask people about their interest on a scale from one to 10 and 10 being the best. And then we take the average and that's the number that we report. Anything with an, with an interest level above a six is really terrific. Anything between a 5.5 and a 6 is good. And if you're below 5.5, um, that means you probably got some real problems. So when we look at the numbers, so I did pull up the numbers for less. The velocity kind of hovered below that 5.5 threshold for quite a while. And then in the ramp up to release the final three weeks, it started to climb. And in the end, it did sort of land um, above 6 by the time it opened. And that's and and that's really that's really what you want to see. What I think... You know, I think the 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 loss the lessons of velocity are a few. One is that stars still matter, <laughs> right? Um, two, I think it it it. You know, I think a lot of people have proclaimed that comedy is dead, or that maybe it's not dead, but maybe it's dead theatrically. That comedy just lives on streaming services now, and there is a lot of data over the past five years to show that that is in fact true, that attendance for comedies has gone down. But what it, but, but the success of The Lost City, I think, shows a few things. One, that you can take a genre that is perceived to be dead theatrically, and, it, and, and if it's made with care and with love and with a good script, and it's, and it's curated in terms of its marketing, anything can succeed, any genre can succeed. That we can't we can't just make these blanket statements about what kind of movies work and which ones don't. They all need to have a, a level of excellence to them for success. Um, and and you know, last time we spoke, I think I said to you that the one movie this was in November. I said the one movie that I'm really watching was West Side Story. Uh, West Side Story hadn't come out yet, and the reason I was watching West Side Story was because that was going to be a real bell, bellwether as to whether or not women were going to come back to the theater. Obviously, they did not, and so the the box office failure of, of West Side Story then sort of led to, okay, so what's the next movie that's, that's appealing to this audience? And it was The Lost City. Well, okay, so we've got three months between West Side Story and The Lost City. Has that audience, is that audience returning? And, and very clearly The Lost City brought in the audience that West Side Story aspired to and couldn't. And I, and I think that's a really important shift in the makeup of the audience. One of the things that we see in our data, we have, we have demographic data that we don't publish on our site. Um, and so we can see what the interest levels are among men and women, and more specifically, men, you know, the kind of the four quadrants, men, young men, older men, young women, older women. And the numbers, the, the interest levels for women for The Lost City were enormous. And they were well before the movie opened. The interest levels for men were not quite there. And so when, when, the, when the interest for The Lost City was below 5.5, it wasn't because of the women, it was because the men were dragging it down. And then as it got closer to release, the male audience started to, to show some interest in the movie. And that's the holy grail. If you can get your core audience of, in this case, women excited about a movie, and then as you get closer to release, expand it into an audience that you th didn't think was necessarily going to come, then you're in a really, really terrific, terrific position. You know, we're watching, I'm, you know, I'm watching, um, you know, this Reese Witherspoon movie where the crawl dads sing. She's not in it. She's producing it. And that, again, is another female-driven movie, high priority for the studio. And we're beginning to see the same things, which is this groundswell of interest among women. Men have absolutely no interest whatsoever in this movie. Now, mm -hmm. is that a movie? I think they're going to have a harder time expanding that one because 
expanding the audience on them because it doesn't have Channing Tatum in it, right? It doesn't have sort of mm-hmm. strong male lean in the movie. But that's one of the things that we look at is, all right, here's the core audience. The core audience for this particular movie is one that's still a little bit hesitant to come back to the movies. But for Crawl Dads to really succeed in the big way that like The Lost City did, it's going to have to solidify that core. And then it's going to have to expand beyond that to bring for, to bring men in. And that's going to be a real challenge for them, I think. There are very, How do you... I- Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say there are very few movies that we see that appeal to women and also appeal to men. Yeah. Does it go the other way? Are there more that appeal to men and also women? Oh, uh, that that appeal to men and also women? It, you appeal primarily to men and then also pick up that well uh, female. Uh, a, a little bit, but not as not as much. You know, Uncharted is one that you know the numbers for the women start to pick up a little bit as you got closer to release. Um, but what we typically see is that these demos are kind of, these demos are kind of locked in and just sort of, let's just talk about the, the gender demos. They're kind of locked mm-hmm. in, they're baked in and they don't really change a whole lot. And that's the challenge for the studio marketing team, right? Is to, is, is to expand the audience. It doesn't really happen all that often. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's tough. It's tough to get everybody excited for, uh, the same thing. Um, all right. Well, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I feel like things have, uh, gotten better. Certainly. It certainly feels like things have, have improved. Certainly when I go to a theater and just kind of sit in with a crowd, the, the audiences, um, seem better, but is there anything, uh, is there anything you want to, what should I have asked? What did I fail to ask? <laughs> is there anything that you uh, think folks should know about the, uh, theatrical moment? Well, you know, listen, I can I can tell you some of the things that we're thinking about for our next study. I can give you a little bit of a sneak peek into that. You know, yeah, that'd be great. One of the things that we want to focus on with our next study beyond what we, we, we've covered here is is the large format experience, because that's also sort of a, a, a pretty large conversation here in Vegas right now is um, is large format. Large format screens tend to sell out before the regular theaters do. Um, and that really seems like a very large growing segment. So, you know, one of the things that we really want to try and understand is who's going to large format? What does it mean? And is that a real growth opportunity um, for exhibition as well? Um, and, and, and by the way, that just sort of, that sort of folds into what we're talking about, which is this overall movie going experience. Large format is part of that experience, right? Elevating the experience of movie going. So, um, if, 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 if you welcome me back down the road when we do our next study, that's, that might be one of the things we'll be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, that is certainly a thing I am interested in, the proliferation of IMAX and um, and all that. Maybe we can talk a little bit about 3D as well, since uh, Avatar 2 is headed to theaters, and I'm sure James Cameron is going to want everybody in there with their, their glasses on watching it. So. Right, which is, you know, has been dead for a long time, 3D. He's going to bring it back. Yeah. yeah, we'll see how that goes. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show, David. I really appreciate it. Again, go check out thequorum.com. Uh, it, it is a, a treasure trove of data. If you're if you're looking at, I mean, I'm just uh, I was before we started the show, I was looking at the Doctor Strange tracking to see uh, what was going on there, and uh, you know, needless to say, awareness ticking up, interest still a little flat, but well above the six. Mark, um, I think I saw a number today that they've already sold $44 million worth of tickets. So they, they're going to be fine. Um, be fine. But keep an eye on keep an eye on these, the, the Top Gun numbers because they're just really beginning to go through the roof. And that, that just looks like it's going to be a big movie. Yeah. 
Uh, all right. Well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.